HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our conversation with food media baron Chris Kimball was a hoot. Although he produces his own Milk Street podcast and radio show, carried on over 200 radio stations, he was willing to come on our show. He's a wry man with amazing energy and a boundless entrepreneurial spirit, founding Cook's Illustrated, Cook's Magazine, America's Test Kitchen, and now Milk Street, not to mention his seven books and counting. They have all been centered around food and food media, an empire builder of the first order. We asked Chris Kimball, why food? Mostly, I just want to chat about you because, you know, you're my favorite you're, topic. Yeah, this is I know. Great. <laughs> well, I can't wait. Chris Kimball has an amazing resume, starting from very early on with all the amazing things that you do. But it's kind of hard to know, as self-revelatory as you sort of are, not really. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Well, so good I'm luck. Really, yeah, I'm a trustworthy <laughs> so person. This will be you interesting. Know that I am a softball kind of girl. I'm looking for a little bit of like, who are you? Having refreshed myself with your bio that is available on Wikipedia, if you haven't looked at that recently, it's you know always interesting reading. I think you grew up in New York, and somehow you found your way to Exeter. You found your way to Columbia, and somehow with all of that, you found your way to food. And I've always been curious about why food for you. I have experienced at fairly close range your incredible management and entrepreneurial talents. And it is clear to me that you could have gone in about 40 different directions. What was the food thing for you? Did you grow up in a household that was all about food? Was it a a direction or a refuge? Yeah. (laughs) Laugh is okay. So There are two answers. Uh, one is the emotional answer, which is I 
spent a lot of time, as you know, in Vermont starting in 1955. I worked on someone else's dairy farm. We also raised pigs in Angus, but <clears throat> I worked on someone else's dairy farm. And not every day, but many days, I'd eat noon dinner at the farmhouse. A woman there did all the cooking. And so I got used to food as uh-huh. being the center of the town because anybody who stopped by would be invited to lunch or if it was in the afternoon, you get a slice of bread and a schmear of butter and a cup of tea or a molasses cookie. So her cooking really united the town. Their house was just 100 yards from the town line. So as you went out of town, there was one road in town and out of town, people stopped by. So, you know, the the idea that the table was at the center of the community, this is a community with 250 people at the time. Uh, there was no running water, you know, no, no plumbing. It was a it was a pump in the sink, outhouse, et cetera. So it, that set up my interest in food and cooking as being a social, a communal way of pulling people together. Separate from that, food, if you think about media separately, what is there not to like? There are cookbooks. Uh, there's kitchen work. There are magazine publishing and writing and travel. There's television, there's radio, there's cooking classes. Now, today with Milk Street, there's a e-commerce section. I right. majored, for whatever reason, <laughs> in art in college. It's, it's a combination of art, commerce, and uh, writing and design, all those things. So I, I can't imagine well, a more I, interesting I totally career. agree with you. But I was just curious. I mean, when you uh, sitting around the... Uh, the Kimball family table when you were growing up was food and cooking and your mother and your father and your stepfather. Was that like a thing or was that just, no? Hmm. No, no, no. That's the classic question I ask people all the time is like, did you learn to cook from your grandmother? And in my case, my mother was a terrible cook. My father, I don't think he was born with taste buds. He, he may have had a few somewhere. I'm, I'm not sure. He liked meatloaf and lima beans. I think those are his two favorite things. Um, she, she was quite a good gardener, though, and she dug up our front yard one year and put in an organic garden with semi-composted cow manure. So we, we had a lot of organic vegetables in a root cellar, but she didn't know what to do with them, really. On the other hand, in Vermont, where I had this other life, totally different than my life outside of New York City, there was a lot of food because we grew our own meat and our own pork, you know, grew our own corn. We had a big garden. So in the summers in particular, I made peach ice cream with the old White Mountain crank freezer. We helped out with a sugaring operation down the road at, at Charlie Bentley's place. And, you know, we'd make a bunch of syrup and we put that on vanilla ice cream that we made or bought at the dairy down the road. So food was very much part of the Vermont experience, but not part of the, the regular experience during the rest of the year. I, I, I totally relate to what you're saying because for years and years, I interviewed all sorts of cooks and chefs and they would constantly tell me how they would be cooking with their grandmother or they were cooking with their mother and they would ask me and I would like, yeah, I got none of that. No, my mother couldn't even do a jello mold. That was, (laughs) that was not, that was not my experience. This is my reaction formation. So here you were a country boy in the summers and a city boy in the winters. Right. Kind of odd, don't you think? You know, I'm, I feel extraordinarily fortunate because uh, I think Vermont 
gave me a lot of values. I mean, look, the people I worked with probably made three or four thousand dollars a year, literally, back in the '60s. It was subsistence living, really. They'd buy a truck every ten or fifteen years, and the tractor was a 1949 Farmall, and the other equipment was old. So, and they used horses still for a lot of the farm work. They used teams of horses. It was names like Tiffany, you know, which made no sense to me. You know, the odd donkey was running around. So uh, th- that gave me a sense of of w- what was important. Do you help out when someone's sick? Do you bring wood over to somebody who needs some firewood? Uh, you know, do you give money to the local vol- volunteer fire department or go to the chicken dinner in July? Are you volunteering to bake a cake for the bake sale at the old home day? Those are the ways you're measured as a human being, not money or anything else. So I think that was part A. Part B was the other life was more the intellectual life, you know, an avid interest in reading and ideas. And at dinner, um, we had dinner exactly at 7 o'clock every night. I had to wear a coat and tie. Um, <laughs> seems, seems like a century ago. Seems pretty uh, uptight and rigid to me. <laughs> Well, that was my mother's experience when she grew up because mm. her her parents were from Wa- lived in Washington. He was a well-known doctor and she was actually worked at the Mayo Clinic as a nurse for some time. But that's her that was her childhood. But the thing I liked was you were treated as an adult, that is you were expected to join in the conversation from an early age. You were expected to have an opinion. And much to my wife's dismay, my love of argument and conversation is extreme. I love trying out ideas and annoying people to see what they say. So one life was the life of the amateur philosopher, right? Were you supposed to be well-read and be interested and be interested in this and that and the other thing? And the other was a deep respect for how a small rural community lives and what's important and, and what's important should be important to you. So I think that's a great combination uh, a love of ideas and a love of sort of basic community. Uh, my sister and I still talk about it. I think it was a very fortunate mix. Yeah. I just can't believe that as a little kid, you were milking cows and then, you know, going back to wearing your bow tie to go off to prep school. But um, No, no, no. I didn't wear a bow tie till <laughs> 19, early 1980s. I was still uh, uh, the regular tie. But yeah, at prep school, I mean, everybody... I think there's, it's probably the most politically incorrect thing to say you went to a prep school in the 60s. But I, I, I will defend it uh, on That's one okay. level. That's okay. I, w- I went to one too. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't I, – I, I just think people don't understand it. They just think of what a horrible Neolithic thing it was. And it was hard. But the, the basic message of that school, which I still think is valuable, is sink or swim. You know, it's like, okay – you got to show up at class. You got to do this. You got to do that. And we're giving you this responsibility to learn. You got to show up prepared and you got to participate. You know, the, the classroom, like many schools like that, had an oval table, the Harkness table, they called it. And you had to sit around and, and the teacher, he wasn't teaching down at you. He was sort of with you. Or she, it was a he. Actually, there were no she's at that time, I think, almost none. Um, and, and you had to participate in the class. It was not a... Yep. Um, warm and welcoming environment, but it was, look, you're better than you think you are, but you just got to work hard. And it built confidence. At least in my case, it built confidence. And I'm very grateful for that Hmm. too, because nothing I've ever done since then is harder than that. 
You know, that was pretty hard. Uh, and so I can always look back and go, well, at least I'm not in Russian history class in 1968. The, I, I and imagine that that keeps you on the even keel, just to remind yourself that you're not in Russian history class in 1968. What I say to myself when I'm in danger, I say math test. And that sort of, you know, that sort of straightens my spine and makes sure I don't laugh at funerals and things like that. The point being that the experience is to fall down a lot and fail, you know, fail, you fail, you fail, you fail. And on the ninth try, you, you finally figure it out. And I think that's really uh, important to learn that, that you will fail lots of times, but you have to keep going back. I know that sounds sappy and, you know, old fashioned of me, but I do believe in that. And I believe that excellence is something that is worth trying to achieve However you define excellence, excellence is a very hard thing to define. It's different for everybody. But, you know, if you want to make the best goat cheese, like some of my neighbors do in Vermont, okay, well, that's that's your definition. That's fine. But caring about it and caring about the job you do is important. If you don't put yourself out there, nothing happens. And- well, there, there was another – a guy called Bill Gillespie wrote a commencement address in 1965 or six when – which I did not attend. I graduated in 69. But it really struck me. He, uh, he may have paraphrased this from somebody else, but I, I thought he made this up. But he, he was talking about when you leave this uh, not very warm nest of a school, he sort of framed a life well lived as striking a few shrewd blows for civilization. <laughs> and and I, what a great phrase, right? <laughs> And, and the more I think about it, and the more I think of what's going on in the world, I'm going like, yeah, okay, that's that would be at the top of my list. Depends how you define civilization, of course. But but the idea of you know, sort of fight against a sea of barbarism, you know, to strike a few shrewd blows for civilization. I just is really, I keep that actually on my iPhone all the time. It's a little, I keep that speech, and, and I look at it every two weeks. Because I think that's, if, if you want to live a good life, you know, striking a few shrewd blows, I don't know. There are worse things you could do with your life. There are worse things. I love it. You know, I always wondered, and I have to tell you, I was not the, I'm not the only person who wondered this. Did you ever think about, like, going to cooking school or becoming a chef? Or was that ever part of the thing? One of the people I had a conversation with about you was Julia Child. And she said she thought that you always <laughs> felt bad you didn't go to cooking school. Of course school. she did. Yeah, no, she, she, she would say that about anyone who didn't go to French cooking school. <laughs> she told thousands of people that. No, the first thing she said, yeah, she oh, she go to study at the La Varenne. And we'll be back in a minute with Chris Kimball and find out why Julia Child thought he should go to cooking school. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, 
about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Chris Kimball. One of the people I had a conversation with about about you was Julia Child. And she said she thought that you always felt bad that you didn't go to cooking school. Of course school. she did. Yeah, no, a, she, she, she would say that about anyone who didn't go to French cooking school. <laughs> she told thousands of people that. No, the first thing she said, yeah, she wrote, she go to study at the Lafayette. You know, okay, fine. Um Okay, she went to the Cordon Bleu for six months. Great. But, um, well, I, you know, looking back, I think it would have been great to spend a year at a stage or go to a La Varenne or go to Cordon Bleu or something. I, I, think, I think she's right. I think getting a foundation in French cooking, because it's the one cuisine – now I'm going to get in real trouble. It is a cuisine <laughs> that has a very rigid way of cooking, right? I mean, there's stages. There's just a whole – system. And so that's why French restaurants around the world for so long were so consistent because they had a system. Right. And I think that system, although I take big exceptions to French cooking in many ways, I think it's a reductionist method. You know, it's it's a melting pot. You take a bunch of ingredients and you you do a lot of things to them and cook them slowly over a long period of time and then you meld them down into a deeply flavored rich thing, but it's a sort of a subtle one note. Whereas the rest of the world, you know, okay, you've got a bunch of, you know, Aleppo pepper here, you got some ginger, and you've got some Wahio chilies, and you've got some, uh, you know, whatever, lemongrass. It's just a bunch of very different notes, all of which retain their personality. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's how I see French cooking versus most of the rest of the world. But still, there's a lot to learn from those techniques. And I think it would have been good. But, you know, she was she was intent on everybody learning how to cook in the traditional French method because that's her experience. You know, that was where she came from. And it really worked for her. So <laughs> yeah, it really worked for her, yeah. but it worked for her not because I think she was six months. I've read a couple of books about her. And I never discussed it with her, but she was not at the top of her class. Let me put it that way. But her skill, I don't think was in the cooking as much as it was the teaching, right? I mean, what she understood better than anybody was not French cooking. It was the American audience. And she understood the American chicken in the supermarket. And, you know, she understood how to translate what other people did into a vernacular that the American, mostly housewife at the time, the American home cook uh, could understand and and appreciate. If that translation and that teaching and that ability to draw people in, which was her great success, other people were more accomplished cooks like Jacques Pepin, for example. Like if you see the two together in their show from years ago, <laughs> you know, it's pretty yeah, funny because sure. Jacques is turning out this, you know, perfect stuff and Julie is kind of messing around with it a little bit, uh, but but being more entertaining. But uh, that's also why people loved her. Of course. somehow they could imagine if they yes. were a little sloppy yeah. and they didn't exactly, <laughs> exactly manage to perfect every little, um, every little twist. But, but that's so, <laughs> but that's so interesting because the French, <clears throat> Simone Beck and all those people, you know, these people, there was a system and there was a way of doing things and you had to do it the right way. I mean, that's why the French love bureaucracy, right? They like things in their place. 
Uh, it's one of the great hallmarks of French culture. But Julia wasn't afraid to mess it up or, or to take liberties with it or do it a different way. Or She was the classic American free thinker. It's sort of like the great tradition of the English explorer, the amateur explorer, right? Who just goes out and climbs the mountain right. with with no experience and no gear and just gets and there. And finds Haley's Comet. If I, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I love those books from the 30s. I've read so many of them where they, you know, they just go out and they sail around the world or whatever they do. And, and Julia is one of those people. She's sort of the amateur enthusiast who had some training, but not a lot. But just from dint of personality, intelligence, raw skill, made herself into an expert on French cooking when she really had no, no good reason to be an expert on it, really. Uh, but she just decided she was going to do it, and she did it. You know, and so that's why you got to love Julia. Well, what's it like when you cook? One thing I once heard about Julia Child that always surprised me was that she couldn't, like, look in her refrigerator and see that she had an eggplant and an onion and some chicken and whatever and just sort of come up with something. She needed everything to be pre-planned. And I've always found that really interesting because, you know, to me, cooking sort of opportunistic. I love cooking from recipes, but I don't need to in a pinch. What happens when you cook? Because on TV and on your, in, in all your publications, it's extremely structured. Is that how you are yourself? I'm schizophrenic in the kitchen. Um, there are times like tonight, I have no idea what I'm going to make. I'm going to go look in the refrigerator and figure it out. But I also do like following recipes. And the reason I like it is because I don't have to think. And there's something about Cooking is a purely manual sensory experience where you're not – the brain's not really working in the, mm-hmm. intellectually. You, you're just a physical – you're smelling things. You're listening to the onion sizzling. You're, you're touching the knife. You're feeling the salmon. Uh, and so you, you exist on it. You know, and I'm listening to Grateful Dead or <laughs> BBC Radio 4 Extra or whatever. I'm listening to and, and so I'm just having a good time and my mind shuts down. It's kind of like why I used to love scuba diving because you're not thinking the way you normally do. You're focused on something else. So I like both. I like to follow recipes, especially, look, if somebody I really like and I really like their cooking, um, I, I like to follow their recipe because I trust it. And I, I, mean, I learn something by following their recipe. But other times, sometimes I'll just, you know, make up. I mean, the easiest thing to do sometimes is take an Instant Pot and you've got some chicken. I can make, you know, a hundred different dishes with that in about half an hour, you know, from a Dora Watt, you know, kind of thing with onions and spices, a little water and a million other things. So it just depends on my mood. Yeah. What I really like to do now is to cook while I listen to podcasts (laughs) because my hands are busy. My head's in a place. I am at one with my world. Um, even if I'm listening to something which is upsetting, which is often true. <laughs> My hands like to do their work um, rather than checking back and forth always with a with a recipe. But I like to follow recipes because sometimes I, I wouldn't know how to make some of those things. I mean, I just learned how to make spanakopita last week from somebody. So that's good. <laughs> that was fun. Well, yeah, but then you have the disaster, which is I just – I won't say which book I cooked out of, but it was – I was making a um, – ganache for a cake. And usually ganache is, you know, you heat the cream, you have the chopped chocolate, you, you take it off heat, you stir the chocolate in, maybe you add a little corn syrup, but whatever. You know, it's very simple, right? 
In theory, uh, it is simple. The, in theory. <laughs> well, no, ganache is – but this one, had you made a sugar syrup, which gets – you know, sugar syrups get really hot. And they also – they involve water because you have water, you know, two parts sugar to one part water. You're melting it down. And the last thing you want to do with chocolate is to get it really hot because it will seize. So I'm looking at this recipe and said, okay, make the sugar syrup and then take the chocolate and pour it into the pot with the sugar syrup. And I'm going like, this is really a bad idea. <laughs> and I had like 25 hours worth of chocolate in the bowl. I'm going like, this, this is not going to work. But the person told me that it, it would work. It was a little tricky, but it worked. So I put it in and everything seized. I throw it out. But, it's, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's one of those moments you go like, this isn't going to work. And uh, yeah, that didn't work. So I, that, that I had to make up, you know, quickly throw together a regular ganache. Which That's that chemistry part that I find a little challenging. That's when I follow the recipes. <laughs> well, chemistry is helpful up to a point. But I've now, the problem is if you know a little bit, it gets you into a lot of trouble. All of these self-professed food scientists on cooking shows and stuff. I mean, there are, there are food scientists who really know their stuff, like Harold, you know, McGee. But the rest of us, you know, if you really get into the details of what's going on, I can explain gluten from gluten and gliadin and water and everything else. But if you really want to get into these proteins and these other things, really, I mean, every layer, there's another layer, right? There's another level. And it just goes down and down and down to the point where it's just, you end up, you know, with black hole theory at some point and you just go like, okay, I'm, I, I just need to know enough so I can cook. One of my... Um when I moved into the women's dorm at MIT, I was a transfer student in. All of the women on my floor were chemists, and they were all making fudge all the time. And they were always sort of talking about the temperature and the time, and they were into the science of it in ways that made no sense to me at all. But I learned to have a respect for people who can do that. I am just not one of them. But Godspeed to those who do. Godspeed. Do you cook with your kids now that you grew up with? You have a whole bunch of kids now, including little midges. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I should call them mid, midges. Yeah. Uh, I have two midges and four quasi grownups. My second oldest, Caroline, she actually had a pie making business sometimes uh, in Vermont and sold them at, the, at one of the farmer's markets. in Rutland. She's quite a good baker. She made my birthday cake this summer. It was just phenomenal. So she's good. And we, we cook together. She's, she lives actually just a few miles from me in Vermont when I'm up there. So that's nice. We cook together. My other kids, my youngest, Emily, my youngest of the older kids, is, is a good cook. Uh, my s- older son, Charlie, actually just starting cooking now. I don't, he, all of a sudden, he took it up a few months ago, which is hopeful. And my eldest, Whitney, who's 33 now, is uh, she never had much interest in cooking, I don't think. And my two young kids, it's just so hopeless. I really, <laughs> I mean, they eat scrambled eggs. They eat <laughs> pasta. They they eat steamed broccoli uh-huh. and cauliflower for some reason hummus hummus you know they eat that it, once in a while a chicken cutlet if you sneak it on the plate but trying to cook for example I, I made a a simple pasta with a fresh tomato sauce the other night and it it was red well, I guess we can't do red no I, I don't like, know what you were thinking I, I I'm just like I, I I'm just like Okay, here's the deal. You, you eat what I cook or you can have an apple for dinner. You know, that, that's sort of where I'm headed now, which is how we dealt with my older kids, which was this one menu. You don't like it, fine. You're going to eat fruit for dinner, but we're, we're not going to do the two or three different you know, versions. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I've been through all of it and I have 
one granddaughter now who will taste something and say, and she's five, is there rosemary and thyme in this? Oh, no. <laughs> and another really? one who oh, will eat God. pasta, but only if it has butter on it and there are no flecks of like that green stuff. So, <laughs> yes. so yeah. Well, the person, I mean, Kenji Lopez, I'll uh, I talk to occasionally. He, You know, he's got a daughter. Now he's got two kids. But his daughter's about the same age as my son who's four and a half. And this kid eats everything. I mean, spicy food, you know, everything. Just everything. And it's just... Sometimes you get lucky. I I don't know what to say. (laughs) I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, Kenji's a pretty extraordinary guy. Maybe he actually knows something. I don't know. Wow. Well, I have one more question, and then I need to let you go, because I know you are, you know, you're busy sort of uh, reinventing the world of food. Do you like... Do you like what you're doing now? You're 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 doing a TV show, a podcast, the magazine, cooking lessons, books. When you wake up in the morning, which one do you want to do the most? Oh, I think the radio show's my favorite by far. You know, a cooking TV show is mostly about standing and cooking, mm-hmm. which I like, but you can't have a long conversation with somebody. Uh, and what I really like the most, I just interviewed Alice Waters recently as well, and uh, and I just also interviewed Rachel Ray, both of them. And I had really long, hour-long conversations, deeply personal conversations with them hmm. uh, about their philosophy of life and how they got through the last two years and you know why Alice thought that eating lunch around a table with interesting conversation was like the most important thing in her life as she planned a career years ago. So uh, you have an opportunity to get to know people. Uh, I think radio is a very intimate, the most intimate media, much more so than video. You also, to go back to an earlier conversation we had here, it's an exchange of ideas, right? Um, Because people talk about how they view food or how they think about cooking or what's important to them. That's interesting to me is you get to know these different people and and from all over the world. I mean, radio, we don't have to go there. So I can talk to someone in Taipei or someone in Oaxaca or someone in, you know, Puerto Vallarta or whatever. Uh, and so I get to meet all these people. So it's radio's top of my list. Hmm. No, I agree. It, there's something seductively intimate about it. When I record it, it's kind of a Almost like being in your own private echo chamber with somebody. It's wonderful. Um, yeah. The the only problem with it is, though, when you do this a lot, you interview people, then when you listen to other people interview people on other shows, <laughs> you get really, I get so obnoxious. I'm, I'm in my car going, like, ask this question, <laughs> you know, because, you know, you know, you've been there and you just go like, oh, come, come on, Terry, you know, ask Katie Couric this question. I want to hear you ask this question. So you start to think you know how to interview people, which you don't. Uh, and then, then you, you listen to other people do it. You could I was going to, come on, Terry, <laughs> not, not, don't do it that way. But, you know, that's just, you know. <laughs> you, you don't think that's just you? <laughs> no, you're right. That's, uh, well, I, yeah, you're right. It's a genetic thing. My mother was the same way. It's, you're just sort of being... A little annoying all the time. Yeah, that that's that's putting it kindly. Probably, <laughs> I think people think you're a little annoying. It's true. I don't <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a little annoying. Yeah, and I, I well, here here's the here's my defense on that. I'm harder on my. This is the same old story, right? I'm harder on myself than anybody else, and I just have, you know, go back to the idea of excellence. I just have no patience when people don't care about doing a really good job. When someone does a really good job, I actually 
once in a long while, we'll say so. <laughs> but I just I just assume everybody gets up in the morning wanting to do the best job they can. And and when I run into against into people who don't, then I then I'm really annoying because I just expect everybody to be as enthusiastic about what they do as I am. And you know, that's I, I'm not you know, I have one setting. <laughs> Right, I'm, right. It's, like, it's like a car with one gear. I, I just don't understand why you'd want to get out of bed in the morning and not and like like what you do. Now, I have to say, that being said, so many people just don't have the opportunity to do that, right? I mean, having the opportunity, as Alice would say, you know, to do what you love is the greatest gift there is. Uh, and I'm just extraordinarily fortunate to have stumbled backwards and sideways into what I do. Unlike Alice, who I think was very careful about constructing a, you know, a life that, that suits her, uh, I didn't. I just ended up here. So, you know, I, a lot of people have to go to work and do things they don't want to do. And that's – so I'm not frustrated with that. But I, I think if, if people have an opportunity to do what they do like and do it well, then I expect them – you know, I, I want to be around people who care about doing it well. I guess that's what I would say. Do you really think that you stumbled into it? Oh yeah, I, no. This is uh, my mother and I share. She's long gone, but I share a lot of this, which is we basically stumbled. You know, I probably spent less time figuring out what to do in my life as I did, you know, like choosing a bicycle when I was in college. I, I think I ended up there without consciously deciding how to do it. I think it just sort of happened. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stumbling. I mean, there's clearly drive and there's clearly an interest in certain things, but careful advanced planning is not one of my um, – I mean, if if you wanted to invade Normandy, you know, in World War II, I, I, I think Eisenhower was a good choice. <laughs> I think I would have been a really bad choice <laughs> for that. I would have done it very impromptu, which would not have worked that well. Yeah, my um, my husband often likes to describe to me the difference between being strategic and tactical, and he considers oh, very, himself strategic, good. and he considers me tactical. That I am very good at getting from A to B to C, but I'm not good at being at A and thinking of Q. Well, it reminds me of third grade with the Blue Jays and the Orioles, the different classes. They, they, he's just using words to kind of obscure his true I meaning. I was once probably. Uh, sitting on a on an outdoor cafe stool on, on Newbury Street in Boston, and a person walked by, two girls walked by, and one of them said, well, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. Hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so true. It is true. If you're a person who's about excellence and drive and energy, that you apply it to every you know you apply it to every opportunity that comes your way and ones that are almost coming your way. And if you're somebody who is waits for things to come to you, that's part of your DNA. Also, it's just how you proceed through your life. And I think it's you know when I was talking to Rachel Ray, I think she says she usually has nine Christmas trees. <laughs> And I'm going like each one has a theme and there are these little Scandinavian handmade things on one and then there's the, you know, the organic treats on the other. And and also she she actually decorates them all. I mean, yeah, she was born with this infinite ability to get more done in a day than I do in a week. 
Uh, and and it, so what you see on TV is actually the real deal. I, I don't think she learned that. I I think she was she was gifted that, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. And uh, God bless her for that. Yeah. Right. It's just been great talking to you. I just I have really enjoyed watching sort of the arc of everything you do, and as it you know becomes a double helix, it gets even more interesting. Um, and, and let's talk again. Just great. Well. We'll both go out and strike a few shrewd blows for civilization. <laughs> How about that? My, my my blows are my six kids, okay? That's my shrewd – I don't know how shrewd they are, but that's those are my blows for civilization. So anyway. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for Thank having you. me on. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you, Chris Kimball. That was so much fun. We'll be tuning into all of your projects, reading all of your books, cooking all of your recipes – and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 